You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I came to Asbury as a sophomore, um, transferred in as a sophomore in the fall of 1999. My very first chapel seat was A7 right there. And I always have to point that out because I'm a, it's just not fair that nobody sits there anymore. Um, it's always empty every time that I come back. So if that row ever gets taken out, I got dibs on that chair. I want to put it in my office. Um, I want to read a little bit more of our text for us this morning from John 6. This is John 6, 25 through 35. John 6, 25 through 35. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 21 years ago, yesterday, my wife Corey and I had the talk, the DTR, the Define the Relationship Talk on Valentine's Eve in the courtyard of Glyde Crawford. We were introduced to one another by John Morley, who works over in Korean Calling, on the green as I was throwing the Frisbee, and she was just passing through. Later that fall, we found ourselves on the same mission team to go to Guatemala over Christmas break, a team that also included James Ballard from WGM Center, and was led by Sarah and Clint Baldwin. So it's a very Asbury story, if you haven't, like, figured this out. And so we go on this mission trip to Guatemala over spring break. We find that we sit by each other quite often. Um, I said it was because she spoke Spanish. She said it was because I liked her. You can believe whatever you choose to believe. We get back from the trip. We're still hanging out quite a bit together. You know how that happens when you kind of find people you click with when you go on trips together. So we get back. We're still hanging out. There's, it's not just us two. It's a few others that we're still hanging out quite a bit. But by February, it's become pretty clear that, that our relationship has probably entered some like nebulous phase. It's like some confusing place. Now, I am a 20-year-old college student, so I am completely oblivious to this confusing, nebulous place, right? She, on the other hand, is not. And so she gets asked all the time, what's going on with you and D? And she's like, I don't know. And I don't know how to ask him. And so one day, a good friend of mine, who's one, still one of my best friends, he is in my room on Johnson 3rd West. And back then, not everybody had cell phones. Um, They were for emergencies only, you know, it was like everybody had the little Nokia phones where you could play Snake, Um, and that was the only game that was on it. 
Um, and so we use the, the real phones, like the landlines. You know, the phone jacks, I think, are still in your rooms. You just don't use them. Um, but we had to use those phones. So she calls my room, and my friend David Bush picks up the phone. Now, he and I had this thing where we always answered each other's phones if we were in each other's rooms. We had similar voices. And one time I had a three-minute conversation with his mom, and she never knew about it. <laughs> and so he picked up my phone, and Corey figures out that it's him. And, and, uh, and he says, hey, do people ask you about you and Dee? And she's like, yes, but I don't know what to do. So then they have this talk, and they've never told me what they actually talked about. I get back to my room, and I was like, hey. He's like, hey. I was like, do I have any messages? He's like, actually, yes, you do. Corey called. I was like, oh, what did she want? And he just kind of looks at me, and he says, hey, so what's going on there? And I'm like, I don't know. Is there anything going on there? He was like, I think maybe there's something going on there. Long story short, that kind of leads us into our DTR in Guy Crawford Parlor, um, uh, Courtyard, on Valentine's Eve of all days. Um, and, uh, and then the rest is history. 21 years later, we've been married 17 and a half years. We have, we've lived in three different states. We have three kids. We foster another one. We have two dogs and six chickens, and we are tired all the time. It is really nice when life can fit into nice, neat little boxes or categories, whether that's political ones like Republican or Democrat, religious ones like Baptist or Methodist, Wordle or no Wordle. When we can classify ourselves and others using whatever categories we choose, it helps us to feel like there is order in the world, that we have some measure of control over our lives. These categories give us a, a sense of identity, tell us who we can trust, and they make us feel safe. The more secure we need to feel, the firmer we tend to hold on to these categories, because it helps us tell us who we are. But like being in a relationship with someone and always saying you're just friends, that category protects you from getting too close, because if you get too close, then you might get hurt. And I'd rather stay safe and classify it as just friends than maybe to allow the possibility of something else. Categories are a way to keep us safe, but they're not always true. So today, we're continuing the series of the I Am statements, and I'm beginning the, the series of the I Am statements that come out of John, as you've seen listed on the screen. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. In each of these statements, Jesus makes bold claims about himself. They are bold because by saying, I am, Jesus is reminding those who are with him of an old, old story, a story that they know by heart. The story is about Moses, the great prophet who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And when Moses had been a, a shepherd in the wilderness, God appeared to Moses out of a burning bush, a bush that was on fire and yet not burning. And God calls to Moses from within the bush and tells him to go and lead the Israelites out of Egypt, to lead them out of slavery, to free them. But Moses questions God, who am I to go to Pharaoh? What if the people ask me your name? What do I say? And to which God replies, I am who I am. The I am statements of Jesus are not just Jesus' way of communicating in metaphors in the Gospel of John. They're declarations establishing his identity as the one who has come to save God's people. Once upon a time, the I am brought them out of slavery and made them a people and a nation. And now the I am is delivering them from slavery to sin and death once and for all.
The first of these I am statements is this one in John 6. And by this point in John's gospel, Jesus has already amassed a following of a great crowd. We see that in the beginning of the chapter. The 12 disciples accompanied Jesus everywhere he went, but when he was in certain regions, there would be also a great crowd who followed him around. He had a reputation as a great teacher and healer, so people showed up so that they might witness a great sign or receive a great teaching. It's hard for us to imagine that today, how people could just abandon their lives, seemingly, and just follow Jesus around the countryside, hoping to see the next great thing. But they were peasants. Their livelihoods depended not on a nine-to-five job where they had to show up at a certain time and leave at a certain time and get the, you know, produce a certain quota of a product or get a project done. They didn't have iPhones with Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok to be able to follow someone and keep up with them. If they wanted to follow someone, they literally followed someone around physically, not just on social media. And so in the region around the Sea of Galilee, there's this great crowd that's following Jesus, hoping to see the next great thing. The great crowd around Jesus is a central character in John 6. It's first mentioned in chapter 6, verse 2. And if you read through the whole chapter, you can see the arc of this crowd kind of carry through the entire chapter. They're the ones who want to make Jesus king by force in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. They're the ones who go looking for him after he crosses over this, to the other side of the lake in 624. They're the ones who ask about God's work, the works that God requires in 628. They're the ones who ask for a sign in 630. They're the ones who grumble when Jesus says he's the bread of life in 641 and ask, isn't this Joseph's son in 642? They're the ones who argue over his words in 652, and they're the ones who say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it in verse 60? And they're the ones who we'll see again in just a minute who turn around and no longer follow him in chapter 6, verse 66. So when we pay attention to the crowd of John 6, we see that they too fall on a spectrum. They don't fall in neat little categories, but they fall on a spectrum of belief. So at the beginning of the chapter, the crowd is the recipient of one of Jesus' signs. Over 5,000 of them are in the open country, and Jesus um, are in the open country following Jesus and waiting again to see Jesus do the next great thing. When mealtime draws near, Jesus asks where they can get food for all these people. Now Philip, who was probably taken aback by this question, answers, it would take almost a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. In other words, it is beyond impossible to think that we could feed this many people in this part of the countryside right now. But one of the other disciples, Andrew, he speaks up. And you have to think he's only doing this for participation points, right? You know when you sit in class and you only say that thing just to make sure the professor knows you're there that day? I was that kid. Like, I say my one thing and I'm done. As long as I say one thing, I'm done. So it feels like Andrew's just getting his participation points. Here's a boy with five small loaves and two small fish. But how are they? How far will they go among so many people? So Andrew has found some food, but again, it's impossible to feed 5,000 people, and it's probably more than 5,000 people. John tells us it's 5,000 men, so it's probably women and children there too. Jesus says, all these people sit down. And so they sit down on all the grass in, the, in that big open area. He takes the loaves and the fishes, and he gives thanks for them. And he breaks them, and he distributes them to who are seated around. And John tells us that not only did everyone have something to eat, but they were full. They all had their fill. Or as my dad would say, they've had a sufficient amount to feel satisfied. And so the crowd is amazed at what Jesus has done. He must be the prophet who is to come and liberate God's people from the Roman occupation. 
They will be free people in a free land once again. So this movement begins in the crowd, and it begins to swell. They want to push Jesus into the limelight. They want to make him a celebrity. They want to build his platform. They want to get him even more followers. But Jesus withdraws, because this is not why he has come. The next morning, the crowd awakens to discover that Jesus and his posse have crossed to their side of the lake. So not to be deterred from their pursuit to make Jesus the next celebrity prophet, they go in search of him. And when they find him, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? We have you scheduled for the Passion Conference, followed by an interview with Tim Keller. And then we're going to make some TikToks. And we're hoping your disciples will be the background dancers. That's not actually in there, but I'm pretty sure it's implied. They go looking for him. They want to make him king. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus says, the signs are nothing more to you than a means to an end. They fill you with awe and wonder. They make you feel good and leave you wanting more. The next sign will have to be bigger and better than the last, and the next one after that, and the next one after that. They will always be looking for more. So on one end of this spectrum of belief is when we find ourselves as consumers. They believe enough to see the signs, but their desire is for more and more content. Consumers are always looking to be fed, always looking for the next greatest thing. Some of us are followers of certain companies or products. We follow the news releases. We, we read about the new features, and when the new one drops, we go out and we get it. I used to be that guy. I used to be the guy to stand in line for the new iPhone. I did it, I think, three times. So that was every two years for like six years, right? Like, I would stand in line for the new iPhone. Whether it's the new iPhone or the Xbox or the smartwatch or the video game, we want the product. We want the content because we're consumers. We want the next best thing. Unfortunately, we're so embedded with this consumerism, like it's such a part of who we are and in our culture, that we also do it with our faith. This mostly takes the shape in how we decide where we go to church. Consumer Christianity evaluates churches on worship music, preaching, programming for children and youth, the style and the state of the buildings. Consumer Christianity is maybe driving 30 minutes to a church that suits your preferences rather than going to the one three minutes down the road. But as soon as that church no longer delivers the right content, as soon as it doesn't satisfy anymore, I'll go just go find another church that does. The crowd that is looking for Jesus, looking to make him king, looking to make him the next big celebrity prophet, they're consumers. They remember that Moses gave their ancestors manna in the wilderness, so now they ask, what can you do for us? They literally ask him that. What sign will you give us? And Jesus says, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but it is the Father who gives the true bread that gives life to the world. And as consumers, the crowd responds, yes, give us this bread. That's exactly what we want. Bread that gives life to the whole world sounds way better than manna. Give us the new bread, the exciting bread. To which Jesus responds, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Those who come to me will never hunger again. Which brings us to the next place on the spectrum of belief. Because when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he throws a whole group of believers and followers into confusion. 
I'm going to read again what it says in verses 41 and 42. I'll read it for the first time. I didn't read it before. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? They're confused. Yes, they've seen the signs, but the signs as, as produced, as done by a man, a man they know to be the son of Joseph and Mary from Nazareth. But now he is saying that he is the bread of life, that he has been sent from heaven. How can he be sent from heaven and be the son of Joseph and Mary? They're confused because they want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They want to believe that he is the one who will deliver them from political and spiritual bondage but he doesn't fit the image of the Messiah that they have in mind. They want someone who will overthrow the Romans. They want someone who will conquer in power. Someone like King David of old who slayed the giant and brought peace to the entire land. They want a warrior. They want someone to look up to. Someone they can say will fight for them. They have certain expectations of who the Messiah will be and what the Messiah will do. They are confused because Jesus is not meeting these expectations. As a pastor, I have embraced a quote from a book called Leadership on the Line by Marty Linsky and Ron Heifetz. And this is the quote. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. I'm going to say it again. Leadership is about disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. The reason I love this quote is because it acknowledges that it is impossible to make everybody happy. This certainly applies in being a pastor, but it applies in any situation where we work with people, where we lead people. You will disappoint people. But the question is, as a leader, can you do it at a rate they can absorb? Can you continue to nurture trust while also disappointing those that trust you. The Jews grumbling about Jesus are confused about Jesus because they are disappointed. And evidently, it's not at a rate that they can absorb. He doesn't meet their expectations. So the question becomes, what will they do when they're disappointed and confused? What do we do when we're disappointed or confused? What do we do? Well, according to some recent research, by the Barna Group, the church attendance has declined sharply during the pandemic. Well, no, duh, <laughs> right? Like again, as a pastor, yeah, I get it. And all the pastors I talk to, nobody is back to 100% pre-pandemic attendance, right? But according to their survey, 53% of adults in the U.S. have not attended church either online or in person since the pandemic. Now, that might not be that surprising. Many of us believe that America is moving into more of a post-Christian society where Christianity is not as important, it's not as believed. But what is surprising is that one of these other numbers is that 19% of practicing Christians, of people who say that their faith is very important to them, 19% of them, almost one in five, have not attended church online or in person in the pandemic. So people who say that their faith is very important to them say that one in five of them have not attended church at all 
during the pandemic. Now, it's hard to say exactly what is contributing to this decline. But in the last two years, our country has been through a lot, hasn't it? Not just the pandemic, that's kind of like the the underlying thing, but a highly contentious election, intense racial conflict, and more churches and Christian institutions being exposed for spiritual abuse, power abuse, and the mishandling of sexual abuse allegations. It'd be easy to blame COVID-19 for why people don't go to church. Oh, well, they'll come back when we don't mask anymore. Oh, they'll come back when they feel safe and they feel like they can come again. But maybe people aren't coming to church, but maybe that's not why people aren't coming to church. Maybe people aren't coming to church because people are disappointed and confused by the church. Isn't the church supposed to be a safe place? Isn't the church supposed to welcome sinners and bring healing and wholeness to people? Isn't the church supposed to transcend our political battles, not contribute to them? As a pastor, if the people in my congregation are confused or disappointed, I would welcome a conversation about that. I would want to know that they're disappointed. It's hard. It's gut-wrenching. I don't like it, but I would want to know it. I would want to know if they were confused. It would be genuinely refreshing to hear about it. But most of the time, when people are confused or disappointed, they just leave. They just stop showing up. And after Jesus teaches once again about being the bread of life and being sent from the Father, we read in verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They can't accept this teaching. They're so confused. They're so disappointed in who Jesus is becoming that he's not this Messiah that they thought that he was going to be. They're so disappointed. They're so confused that many of his disciples turned back and they no longer follow. So first they were consumers, always wanting more from Jesus. Then they were confused, disappointed that Jesus wasn't what they wanted after all. So they left. The last place on the spectrum is where we find those who are left, the 12, the 12 disciples. Jesus asked them now, you do, you do not want to leave too, do you? Are you going to stay or are you going to leave? And Peter answers, of course it's Peter. Peter always answers. He's like that over-eager, overachiever, right? Peter answers, Lord, where else would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This last place is the place of confession. It's the place to be committed. They've been with Jesus every day, seen the highs and lows, heard the teaching, seen the signs, and something, or I should say, Someone is moving in them. And that movement within them is to continue on with Jesus. They don't fully get it. We know that. They don't fully understand still what's going on. But Peter's confession confirms that they are committed. They also get caught up in wanting more from Jesus. Remember, it's in another gospel, but James and John actually ask Jesus if they can sit at his right and left hand. They also think he's going to come to a place of power. 
And they're like, hey, can, can we be at your right and left hand? Can we have like the places of honor? They don't get it. And they're confused and they're disappointed. They also think that Jesus is supposed to come with power when Peter attacks those who come to arrest Jesus. They're, but they're committed nonetheless. Just because we're committed doesn't mean we have it all figured out. Like I said, this is a spectrum. This is not, these aren't categories that we neatly fall into, but this is the spectrum where more than one thing can be true. And for the disciples, they are committed. They have this confession, which is now on Peter's lips, that you are the Holy One of God. But they also still are struggling to get it. They don't fully understand why Jesus is here. They don't fully understand what Jesus is going to do. All they know is that they want to continue on with Jesus. By saying, I am the bread of life, Jesus is inviting the whole crowd from every part of the spectrum to once again trust that God will deliver them. When the manna was given in the wilderness, it was a trust exercise. The appearance of the manna every day was a sign that God had not forgotten about them and that God would deliver them. Jesus, as the bread of life, is the new manna. He's not what they expect, and he will not always give them what they want, but he is the promise that God will do what God says God will do. Jesus is the bread who will not necessarily give them what they want, but he is the promise that God will do what God says God will do. So today, the invitation is, where do we fall on the spectrum? Where, how is the Spirit in work in us and showing us which part of this crowd that, that we're a part of? Because I'm a part of every part of this crowd. I don't fit in any of these categories neatly. I also have consumeristic tendencies when I think about church, and I'm a pastor. <laughs> it's easy to get caught up in thinking, well, if we did this and we did this and we did this, then more people would come, right? Because that's what the culture tells us. I'm also confused and disappointed. Institutions fail us all the time. Things that we thought we could believe in, things that we thought we could trust let us down. But institutions are always institutions. They will always let us down. Jesus is the bread of life. And though he may not give us what we want, Jesus trusts. Jesus is the promise that God will do what God says God will do, which is to honor our confession, which is to honor our commitment, which is to bring us healing and wholeness, which is to bring us to a place where we can come to Jesus and realize that Jesus is enough, that Jesus as the bread is enough.